Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today we are joined by Roxana Asgarian. She's a journalist, writer for the Texas Tribune, and author of the new book, We Were Once a Family, a story of love, death, and child removal in America. This book is so fantastic. It is one of the best things I have read this year easily. It's a shocking and harrowing account of the 2018 Hart family murder-suicide that claimed the lives of six Black children at the hands of their white adoptive mothers. The book is riveting. It's an expose and an indictment on our foster care system. And today, Roxana and I talk about the true crime genre, the flaws in the child welfare system, the ways we treat birth families, and so much more. Remember, our May book club pick is This Boy We Made, a memoir of motherhood, genetics, and facing the unknown by Taylor Harris. We will discuss the book on May 31st with Nicole Chung. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. And if you love The Stacks and you want more of it, like our incredible community on Discord, our bonus episodes, our monthly meetups to discuss our book club picks, and more, join The Stacks Pack on Patreon. It's just $5 a month and you get all of that, plus you get to know that you're part of making this book podcast possible. And now we're offering a free Patreon membership. So if $5 feels like too much, you can join The Stacks Pack and stay connected for free. Head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join now. A shout out to our newest members of the Stacks Pack, Brandy Wheeler, Caitlin Strauss, Mary Phillips, Callie Shanafelt Wong, and Ashley Zulo. Thank you all so much. And thank you to the entire Stacks Pack. I simply love you all. And now it's time for my conversation with Roxana Asgarian. All right, everybody. I am so excited. You know, if you listen to the show, This has happened a few times in the past where I pick up a book just because maybe someone recommended it or I saw it or it looked interesting. And I love the book so much that I completely change my publishing schedule for the podcast because I'm like, I have to have this author on the podcast. The book is too good. We have to talk about it. So today is one of those days. I am joined by Roxana Asgarian, who is the author of We Were Once a Family, A Story of Love, Death, and Child Removal in America. Roxana, welcome to The Stacks. Thank you for having me. 
I'm so excited to talk to you. One of the one of the other books that I rearranged everything to have the author on the show was um, Invisible Child by Andrea Elliott, who you just talked to. So it's sort yeah. of the books are sort of in conversation. But before we talk about Andrea, which we won't really, um, but I love her. Uh, <laughs> will you tell folks who don't know anything about this book in about 30 seconds or so what We Were Once a Family is about? Sure. Um so back in 2018, there was a crash off the Pacific Coast Highway. It was two white women and their five black adoptive children. Um, it was a murder-suicide. And the book is a much deeper look into that story. Um, and it also focuses on the birth families and on the child welfare system. Yeah. So that's what the book's about. For people who are sitting at home and are like, hmm, this sort of sounds familiar. There's a few ways you might know the story. You might remember it when it happened in the news like I do. You might have heard a podcast a few years ago about the this story. Uh, what was it called? Matters of the Heart or something? Broken Hearts. Broken Hearts. I knew it had heart in it. You might have heard of this story because you might remember a picture of a black child hugging a police officer that went viral where the child is sort of crying. It's a white officer, a black child. Or you might watch Atlanta and know that they did an episode that was sort of about this. So if this is sort of sounding familiar to you, it's all this same story. Um, every time I tell people about the book, they're like, is that the Atlanta thing? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like the the real, the real one. Um Okay, so this is, I feel to me, the most obvious question, which is, why did you want to tell this story and who did you feel like had been left out? Mm. So I got the story initially as a breaking news assignment. Um, and so I was do I, I was a freelancer in Houston at the time. And so um, it was just very obvious to me, like immediately upon meeting the first birth family which lived in Houston, that, uh, that they were grieving, not just the like horrific tragedy of the murder, but they were grieving the removal of their kids from a decade prior. And as the story, like you mentioned, it was all over the place in various ways. And as that, as that narrative took off, I felt like the birth families and their experiences in the child welfare system were totally absent from mm -hmm. most of this stuff. Um, and also just, it bothered me that the uh, child welfare system was and remained sort of unaccountable for any of this, even though mm -hmm. I feel like they directed almost every yeah. single, you know, major thing that happened in this story. And it led it to such a brutal, awful outcome that you would think there might be an investigation or some kind of public comment, but there was none of that. And and that really bothered me. Is that something that the child welfare system does? Do they publicly comment or apologize? Uh, I feel like no. Okay. That, that was my instinct. When you said that, I was like, I've never heard of such a thing. Yeah. But you know, like Oregon, they, they decided to open up the records of um, the investigation, for instance, but Texas didn't do anything like that. They wouldn't even release the names of the birth families to the investigators who right. were looking into the crash. So it was like an absolute stonewalling and also just a lack, a complete lack of accountability from even from the media, like attempting to, to get that, you know? 
Yeah. So you do the reporting, you're writing some stories on it, you're doing some investigative journalism, my favorite kind of journalism. When did you decide, you know what, this is a book? Like why, why stick with it? Why go deeper? Why go bigger? The main reason was uh, I had written three stories. So I, I wrote one story about each birth family. And then I wrote a story about three of the kids' older brother, Dante. And when I was finished with those, I didn't feel finished with the story. It felt mm-hmm. like usually when you finish a big project, it has a certain like, ha, ah, okay, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't feel that way. I felt really bad, actually, and which was confusing. And I realized that, you know, in my mind, they really are, these three stories were all part of one larger story. And I mm. felt that, People don't like encounter journalism in that way. (laughs) So I didn't think that people were necessarily going to read all three stories. I see. And I felt, again, that the narrative was so, um, that it was just such a big story. And I felt that the story that was out there was missing so many of these important pieces that I felt like it needed to be this like cohesive project in order to hopefully shift the narrative of the case. Did you feel like there was instant interest in this book? And I ask that question because I am a person who loves to read sort of like heavy nonfiction. Like this book is so in my wheelhouse that a friend of me, te- friend of mine texted me and was like, you've read this, right? And I was like, no, not yet. And she's like, okay, well, I read like 20 pages and was like, this is a Tracy book. So to me, a story about racism, murder, you know, abuse, trauma, all of that is like, appealing to me. But I know for so many people, even as I tell them about this book, they're like, is it going to be too hard for me to read? And so I'm wondering, as you were trying to put it together in a book, did you feel like publishing or the world or like that people were interested in it? Because I think what you've made is, and I don't know if this is appropriate or not, but I think it's somehow like much easier to digest than what I would assume a book about all of this would be. And I I think Mm. that to me, that's a compliment to you. But I know that for some people, it might not be. But it it certainly is to me like that you were able to take this really heavy, dark, devastating story stories and tell a book that is incredibly readable and moves quickly and feels like people can come at it and understand it and not feel completely overwhelmed by it. But I'm wondering when you were first taking it out, if if publishing and the publishers were like, "Mm, this feels dark. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that, um, well, I think it was like a major goal in of mine when I was working on this to make it readable and to pace it so that people could get through it because I knew that the material was so heavy and intense. And I also read a bunch of nonfiction in as I was like prepping for the book proposal. And it felt like some of the books that were very serious were very good, but they weren't that readable because I think there's a ton of people who are interested in like very, very awful things. Right. Yeah. Which is the whole sort of true crime industry that we, so, but I think that those people are able to somehow like decontextualize it to a point where it feels like it's a made up story. That's how I feel that people come at true crime to to enjoy it. You know, I think when I took the book out, I definitely experienced uh, some people wanting that true crime version. And the proposal, I went like, 
I tried really hard to make it very, very clear that that's not what I was doing. And I right. still took a, a meeting with an editor who like clearly wanted that. Um, <laughs> so I think, you know, the publisher where I landed, I feel like they got it from the beginning. Yeah. And, you know, my major goal again was just like to make it, I wanted to take the things that I feel like are useful about true crime, which is like the storytelling aspect yeah. of it. And I wanted all of this sort of systemic critique and context to feel like it was wedded to the story versus like, you know, a big divergence. And here's 10, 20 pages about, you know, whatever. Cause I feel yeah. like that that's the part where you lose people. <laughs> Yeah, totally. Totally. No, I mean, it's like such a short book, considering all that's in there. I think, you know, obviously to talk to you about this book, a, a thing that we must talk about is the child welfare system or the family separation system. Or I don't know how you want to classify it. But I guess my first question is, why do you feel like birth families are left out of this story. I think, you know, so often we hear about the children or child, not this particular story, but the story of adoption and foster care in general. Um, we hear so much about the children and we hear so much about the adoptive or foster families, but we really don't hear a lot about the birth families, even in, I don't know, quote unquote, successful family separations is that a thing a successful one I don't know I, I, the words escape me a little yeah yeah no um I think that um there's just a huge stigma and I think mm -hmm. that like the media contributes to that stigma by not really reporting um on on family separations especially needless family separations which there are quite a lot of those right so we right. hear only the examples of like horrific abuse that end sometimes in murder, right? We hear about the child welfare system in that context. So people have an idea that the child welfare system is um, overburdened and underfunded. Like we hear that right. all the time. Right. And I think that's partly because we only, like we hear so much about those stories that they failed to protect kids. Mm -hmm. And the, and the heart story is that is a story of that too, right? They failed yeah. to protect those kids. But I think what um, bringing in the birth families to that story, you can see the disparity in the treatment and you can see the, the like radically different approach. Right. Like the birth families experienced the system as exclusively punitive. Right. And they were not given second chances. You know, they weren't, it was, it was as if the courts did not consider their bonds to be meaningful in a way right. that we would consider bonds between parents and children to be meaningful. I think, I think that's a, that's just a human impulse to recognize right. that. Right. But we, as a society tend to not recognize birth mothers, birth parents bonds with their children as meaningful because we assume that in order for the court to have severed that bond, um, they must have been abusive. And we right. see time and again that that's not the case. But I think it's just in this particular story, it was so clear that basically every official at every point where they had contact with the birth family assumed that they didn't care and or just completely forgot about them. 
Right. I mean, I said we weren't going to talk about Andrea Elliott, but I think after having read Invisible Child, a book that we've done on this show, reading your book, they're so these two books are so in conversation with each other because with Invisible Child, we're seeing Dasani and her family and we're seeing the ways that these little things get missed and then get blamed on the birth parents. And then in this story, we're seeing what happens when the kids get taken away. And like we see what happens when they end up in the hands of other parents. And I don't know if you in your research know when the shift happened around foster or adoptive parents. But when I was a kid, I feel like foster parents were were kind of more branded in the media as like bad people or like yucky people who were out for money or whatever. Like I think about Annie and I think about Oliver and like to me, those characters are always portrayed as like monsters who also are abusive to children. But I do feel like in recent years, there's been a real like rebrand on fostering to adopt or foster parents and adoption. So I'm wondering if you know when that sort of public shift happened. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think that, um, I mean, I think there's been a huge push in like Christian communities to uh, become foster parents and to adopt children from foster care. And I think that might have had something to do with that push. Um, it it was it's been sort of promoted in those communities as like a way to honor, you know, your your belief system by adding people to your home and then you know really like making Christians out of them. So and I there's see. a lot of issues, honestly, with that too. But I think yeah. that that might have it, like influenced sort of the public perception I like back a couple minutes ago you mentioned that like we hear a lot about the kids and we hear a lot about the adoptive parents but we often don't hear about birth parents and I think we hear about the kids but only through the adoptive parents like that's a major issue oh my gosh yes and this was a major thing in the hearts right case as well because um Jennifer had this big social media presence and she was doing what so many adoptive parents do, which was talk about her adoption journey, mm-hmm. um, which really centers the adoptive parent in their like quest to adopt a kid and is less really about the kid's experience. And when you do see the kid's experience, it's sort of mediated through the lens of the adoptive parent. And, you know, when I was when I was working on this book, I was following a lot of adoptees on Twitter and learning a lot about the ways that they've felt silenced mm-hmm. and the way that their experiences can be really complex and even really positive adoption stories can be very complex for the kids. And many folks don't have positive adoption stories. And it's right. just like, those are another part. That's another part of it. That's really made invisible in service of this, I think, like, because who has the most power in that triad? It's the adoptive parent, right? Because right. they, they almost always have class privilege over the birth parent. And because they are the grown up, <laughs> right. kids don't have that much power, right? And so, right. like, in my like the lens that I see my work is trying to interrogate the power structures behind mm. things like, because it feels like we, we often just tell the stories of the most powerful as if it's a neutral narrative and it's not neutral. So 
And in this story, when we talk about the heart women, um, the two mothers or adoptive mothers, there's also a racial dynamic, but it's much more complicated than I think it seems on the face for people who maybe remember the story from the news, which is that three of the children that were adopted were half black and half white. And so their mother was a white woman. And I think a lot of the times when I think about like transracial adoption, especially white Americans adopting black American children, there is this thing that like, of course, these white women will be deferred to because they're white versus like a black birth parent. And in this case, there was there was a black birth mother and there was also a white birth mother. And and I, yeah. I guess the question sort of is like, how much does race play into this? And and I know obviously a lot of it is class dynamic, but there is a very forward facing racial dynamic to this story. And I'm curious sort of how you unpack that and thought about it. Yeah, I think there's definitely a I mean, I think part of what made this story a good example of the ways that the child welfare system fails is because the racism was very um, blatant. Mm-hmm. Cause we think about racism in child welfare. We think about the like disproportionality of black kids and families involved in child welfare as kind of this like macro right. uh, numbers thing. Right. And we talk about, which I think sort of obscures the individual aspect of it. And I think this case shows like very, very obvious um, examples of racial bias, like uh, in multiple ways. But I do think that Tammy's story, Tammy is the birth mom of Marcus and Hannah and Abigail, and she's a white woman. I really appreciated the fact, the, the opportunity to talk about both birth families because they experienced different types of hostility, right? So Sherry Davis, um, she struggled with drugs. She's the black birth mother. Yeah, she's the black birth mother. She struggled with drugs and that was her major issue. Tammy experienced childhood abuse herself and she struggled with mental illness and that was, and homelessness, housing instability um, on and off while she was parenting. So I think, um, I think Tammy's experience was definitely indicative that, that there's not, that there's more than just racism going on. Right. But I think that like every parent that's involved with CPS is, is already marginalized in some way, Mm -hmm. whether it be disability, mental illness, uh, immigration status, right. Uh, LGBT parents are, you know, often targeted in the, in the child welfare system. And so Tammy, I think, you know, what, what it showed me was that there were so many ways that these parents were struggling and did need support. Mm -hmm. But like the tool that we have in the child welfare system is to punish. That's all the tools that we have. And even Mm -hmm. the sort of service plans, those are done like coercively and under the threat of your kids being removed. So Parents don't experience that as supportive. Right. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and then I want to talk about the parents more. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle 
whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Okay, we're back. And I want to talk about sort of this idea of like support because a thing, you know, that stands out to me the more I learn about foster care and the financials around it is that if you are a family member who takes a child and fosters a child from your own family, you know, you're given less money than a stranger. And if you're a parent who is struggling with, let's say, homelessness, you're not given any money to help take care of your children. But if someone else takes your kid, they are given money. And I'm just like, this doesn't make sense to me. And it's very upsetting to me. Um, I think like, the more that I learn about this system, the more that I learn about you know, the carceral system in general, prison abolition, all of that stuff. So much of it seems tied to this like financial aspect and the ways that we are or are not willing to give support to certain people. And so, you know, are there places that are trying to give parents who are in CPS like that foster care allotment for their own children? Like, have they been testing that? Does it work? Do we know anything? Yeah, all I know um, 
Well, and part of what's difficult about the child welfare system is that it, it really is a patchwork system that is run differently in different states and counties even around right, the country. Right. So it's really hard to like make a a totally sweeping statement unless sure. you somehow were able to have data on every single system. Right. And that's another issue because we know that the data is really patchy. Right, bad. right. Um, but I think, you know, in Texas, it is true that kinship families receive less than half of what foster parents receive to take care of kids. And that's, it kind of, to me, it puts the lie to the, um, you know, there's a federally mandated push that, I mean, it's required that the child welfare system look for family members before they look for non-family members. And that's because all the data shows that kids do best if they stay with their families. Right. Of course. Um, Makes so much sense. (laughs) Yeah. But then you see where the money goes and that can show you what the actual priorities are. Because I think it's very true that birth families like stable members of children's families that are willing and able to take kids have a very difficult time getting custody, keeping their children. It becomes, it's the, the, the hurdles placed in that, in their way are very high. And one of those is money, right? Because like in the Davis family's case, there was an aunt who took the kids in. She had four more kids in her home, which is a huge you know, jump a lot in, of kids. in, and one of them was in diapers and they, several, you know, were in daycare. It was a, it was a situation where her costs just skyrocketed and her at back at that time, there wasn't even a monthly payment for kids, for kinship families. She got like a one-time payment that didn't even cover like the basic furniture, like the beds that the kids needed. Right. And so, you know, we can say, and we do say that we make a preference for families and that we try, but it's very clear that there's a big difference between what we say we're doing and what's actually happening. And why do you think that it's that way? I think that the, I mean, I looked into the history of the child welfare system and that was pretty radicalizing for me (laughs) when to realize that the system is really always set up to, police families that fell outside of the quote unquote norm. And the norm Mm -hmm. has always been like a white middle-class family. And so I think the issue with providing support to the families who need it is that we have a disdain for poor people. We have a disdain for families that are un that are you know outside of that what we consider the norm and i think it's very true today that we consider the norm to be white middle class families yeah. and i'll say though that white middle class families are struggling right now in america right they're yeah. struggling with issues of childcare with housing costs with stagnant wages all that stuff right like they're struggling. And so when you put people who are in poverty, who are experiencing racism, who are um, dealing with mental illness, like their struggles are pretty understandable considering what, you know, what's going on in our society. Yeah. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about the heart women um, because I think like a thing that I went into your book 
thinking was like, oh, I don't want to have to deal with these women too much. Like I'm sort of over them and you really don't spend that much time on them, which I really appreciate. Thank you. Um, but obviously they're huge players in this story. Like the story doesn't happen without them. Right. And so yeah. just for a little background for people, uh, it's a couple, two women, they're in the Midwest. They end up going to Oregon with the children once they get both sets of siblings. And there are some reports before they ever get the six children, they have one daughter that they foster, but they don't fully adopt, I believe. And they mm-hmm. there's some abuse towards her. She's not happy with what happened to her there. They sort of kick her out once they realize they're going to get these other children. And eventually there's reports of abuse from, from the two heart women to the six children. There is a time where... The, Uh, One of the children is sneaking out to the neighbor's house in Oregon asking for food to bring back to their siblings. There's been some reports and some observations in their schools from their teachers and nothing is done. Um, There are some welfare checks that one that does happen eventually and a few that don't happen. There's like some attempts, but there is not this overwhelming, like we must see what's going on. We must bum rush these people and figure out what's happening. Is that common? Is that what you have found in your research is happening once kids are placed in adoptive homes? Like how much are we following up with these kids? And I know, you know, some of it is complicated, as you mentioned, by where kids are adopted from where to where because every state and county and everything is different and Texas has different rules and feelings than Minnesota, than Oregon, than California, whatever. But is this generally something that you see a lot of? Yes, this is generally a problem in uh, post-adoptive homes. Um, And I've I've heard examples of this happening all over the place. Um, There are, there's like a, a sizable percentage of adoptions that are considered failed adoptions, which means that the kids don't live with their adoptive parents anymore. So sometimes the adoptive parents will give them back to um, the child welfare agency. Um, Other times the kids just move out or run away. Um, in New York, I know one of a, a good source of mine was tracking how how often failed adoptions happen in New York, and the adoptive parents continue to receive the subsidy for caring for the kids, wow. even years after the kids don't live with them anymore. Which is just um, another example of the fact that we do have money for certain types right. of people, right? Um, and again, you know, the data here is part of the issue. Because we aren't tracking, we're not we're not catching up with adoptive families very very well and very often, right. and because of that, we don't know what happens to the to the kids. But it's a it, it is a huge issue, and I think like in the case of the Hearts, it was quite alarming the number of times that officials were made aware of abuse um, and of withholding food. There were three separate investigations because they lived in Minnesota and then Oregon and then Washington. All three of those states initiated uh, abuse investigations. Actually, before the second set of kids were adopted, they uh, there were allegations of abuse made against the women. 
it seems like Texas didn't even hear about those before they okayed the second adoption. Right. And they were so busy fast tracking that second adoption that they went about it <laughs> while the aunt was still appealing the decision that right. she, when she got denied for adoption. So um, like, you know, there were, there were multiple instances of um, actually dire warnings. Yeah of abuse. And that's a hard thing to square, I think, for everyone. (laughs) Because, you know, why, why could it be so punitive on one side? And then why could very, very alarming, like five of the kids were so small. uh, An Oregon doctor found that they weren't even on growth charts for their ages, not even on the charts. And I think part of it might have been, you know, they had moved around a lot and maybe people didn't know what they would do with the kids or it's a lot, you know, it's six kids and it's hard to get sibling groups placed together. And I think maybe they didn't know where they would put them or, you know, it, it's hard to imagine when faced with what they were looking at, that they would not take it that seriously, but we've actually found that there's a lot of cases like that. Right. So, right. And it just like, I think the thing that's so hard for me to like think about and understand or like try to wrap my head around is that had the birth parents done a fraction of the things that the heart women did, those kids would have been taken away in an instant. I mean, you mentioned that um, with the Davis family, the mom, she was not abusive. She had a she had a drug addiction issue, but was from all accounts in your book. And I'm, I assume from your research because it's in your book. She was a loving mom who tried really hard to take care of her children, but had her own demons. And mm-hmm. I think like one of the things that I, I guess I didn't understand. I believed the sort of propaganda of the media and the and the imaging and the branding of adoption is that a lot of the times the infractions of the birth families have nothing to do with the abuse of children in the way that we think about child abuse. Like, sure, there's something to be said to have to having a parent that has a drug addiction and and that can be dangerous. Sure, I don't want to negate that, but when faced with on the other side, these children are being starved off growth charts. That's a direct abuse of these children's bodies and their lives and their abilities to thrive. And and I just like, that's the thing that's so hard for me to square. Because if it had been opposite, or if, you know, if they had been transposed or whatever, like, I cannot imagine that there would even be a claim to keep those children in the Davis family had they been starving them and yeah. like, forcing them to sleep in like a dungeon situation. Like, yeah, I, it's not, there's not a question. I don't know. It's just like, that's the part for me that makes me feel like nauseous. And like, that's what gives me the pin in my stomach is it's like, we as a society have decided that certain people are undeserving of a chance immediately upon entry into a system and other people who are part of the exact same system are given chance and chance and chance and are not taken yes. seriously. And the kids are being harmed. Right. And money, right? Like they were money. given money. Yeah. 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 So we're, you know, it's hard to wrap your head around. I, yeah. I agree. I think, you know, it's really challenging because, you know, abuse is real. It's real. Yeah. 
Yeah. And but the thing is, it's it it cuts across class lines, and you know, we we know that abuse exists throughout society, but we yeah. don't see any of. I mean, we don't see middle class families involved with CPS. We don't see rich families involved with CPS, and we, and and that's scary in a different way. Like we're not, the system is not working. Like it right. just is not working. And it doesn't seem to be designed to actually save children from harm, from being harmed, from being abused. Right. And so the idea is like, what could we be doing for kids who experience abuse? And what can we be doing for kids who whose parents have drug problems? Because we right. know that's something that happens across class lines, you yeah. know? But ultimately, when you take a kid from their entire community, from the teachers that they trust, from their friend group, um, when you put kids into a system where they're isolated and, like, you're taking away their ability to find resilience, to be resilient, to get through the difficult aspects of their childhood. And we do that only to certain kids. Mm-hmm. And that, and we know that those outcomes are so terrible, and that it reverberates through generations, right? And and we have to ask, like, why? Like, why are we doing something that we know is not good for these kids? Yeah, you said that the system is not working, and it makes me think of when Miriam Kaba came on the show. She said the purpose of a system is what it does, right? And like, it makes me just think, like. It's not lost on anyone who works in child welfare that they're not taking care of the kids or prioritizing the kids first. I I think that's safe to say. And yet the purpose of a system is what it does. So, of course, the system is working how the system is supposed to be working because it's doing what it does. But it's just like fuck this, this sucks yeah. so bad. Like, it's just like, there's <laughs> not like there's nothing else here for me or you or anyone. And, you know, I don't want to be defeatist or whatever, but like in reading your book, like the takeaway for me is just like, this shit is fucked up, like mm-hmm. period. Um, okay, a little bit more on the heart, heart women and then and then I'm going to come off them. But so we talked about broken hearts. We talked about that. That that's that podcast that came out a few years ago that I listened to, and sort of the through line after all of this came out. At first, it was like this must have been an accident. It's impossible that this could have been on purpose. And then the police reporting, whatever, made it pretty clear there were no skid marks or whatever. Like it, it felt clear they all had Benadryl in their system. It was clearly something was going on. And then the conversation turned to overwhelmed mothers, victims of having to take care of six black children that were fucked up kids who had, they were crack babies and all of this stuff, right? It became about how the kids drove the parents to this. And I mean, what talk about that because that is huge. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that the, um, you know, that's again, like the narrative piece that yeah. where it was like, I, I couldn't let that um, go. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Because, Thank you. Because, um, you know, Jennifer Hart had this whole social media presence where she talked about how wonderful her uh, life was with this big family that they made. And she often talked about, I mean, it was like classic white savior stuff you know, where she talked about how Devante only knew 
curse words when he was three years old and he was shooting guns at three years old and right, of course all this just like it's like blatant lies but they're like racist yeah. lies right yeah. like that's that's clearly racist and i felt that the sort of narrative that was coming out after their deaths um was still buying into that her line of thinking right you know it's like oh what how did she snap but then geez, it must have been really hard. It's like... If, right, if like she's were- an unreliable narrator that we're relying on for the entire backstory, essentially. Yes, yes. And the idea being that, like, these kids never were able to talk to people outside of her presence either. So it was right. like, there really was no good information about the kids themselves from their own mouths that wasn't again mediated through her and that was a real challenge in the reporting because i wanted to give a picture of who they were mm-hmm. um and it was just because they were so isolated and because there was this big like fake you right. know facade right um it was really challenging to do that and you know the birth family is like the oldest kids they knew them the best because they had the most time with them right um but the youngest kids were bare- were babies so yeah. um that was really challenging but like you know the police really put forth this narrative in the inquest that the that the women were really overwhelmed the sheriff in Mendocino County said you know was this a Thelma and Louise situation like he used right. those words that's like horrific because this has nothing to do with that type of a situation. Like if, if the two women wanted to commit suicide, that's not the same thing as murdering six children. Right. Um, and just like even putting it and making it sort of, it, it felt that the, there were, the kids were simultaneously held up as like, Oh, these poor babies. But then like this narrative was so dehumanizing to them and to right. their lives and like the lives that they could have and should have been able to live. Yeah. And that's really, you know, that pissed me off. And it also like hurt my feelings. Yeah. <laughs> but like, you know, and, and spending time with the birth families and seeing how like they weren't given like the basic courtesy of like somebody calling them and telling them yeah. that their fucking kids were murdered, you know? Like it all is part of the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I just, it makes me wonder why this story has become so incredibly popular, especially given that the public understanding of it is lacking in so much of the depth that you kind of share with with the world. Like before your book, this story was still really, really popular. And I just, I don't, I mean, it's really grisly. I think that's part of why it's popular, like what you were saying about true crime. But, and I think maybe the virality of the hug, free hug, Mm -hmm. Devante stuff, like people felt like they knew him before his murder. But I still, it just doesn't, I don't know, it just doesn't make sense to me why this story, I mean, there's a version that makes sense to me, but I don't know. I just don't, I don't like that. (laughs) Like why this one is the one. Well, when I was trying to sell these stories, like originally, I, um, I found Tammy, you know, and her family through her, through her stepmom. And I told them what happened because it was six months later. And 
no one had told them and they didn't know. And that was really awful. But I, I was trying to pitch Tammy's story and I was um, pitching the New York Times, which I had done some breaking news work for them. And the editor said, well, maybe you could be on this other story that, we, you know, you could contribute to this other story we were working on about the case. And I said, OK, well, like, tell me a little more about it, you know, because, again, no one knew who Tammy was, including the police officers who were right. investigating the murder. So <laughs> right. it was actually pretty important breaking news. And he was saying well, it'll probably be like, I got on the phone with the editor and he said, honestly, it'll probably be just a couple paragraphs. We could probably pay you like $150. And um, we're not trying to focus too much on this because like everybody knows that foster care is fucked up and we want to focus on when these women broke bad. That's a quote. Yikes. So in, you know, to me it was like, well, okay, this is a no, like it was a clear yeah. no, like I'm not yeah. going to do this um, because that's, like ex- that's exploiting Tammy for whatever hundred fifty dollars, right? <laughs> which right, not right. Even, you know. Um, but also, it was like that that piece that like why these women broke bad. Like, I think there's we love stories like that, which is yeah. also like kind of deranged in its own way, um, because right. we want to force every story into this model of like this woman snapped, right? Right. Um, and again, it allows us to like judge someone Mm -hmm. but from Mm -hmm. the comfort of like not having to think about um where we're sitting right or any of our like beliefs or um biases right and what's so i mean and if you really do look at this story and like try to find that answer it's way 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 further back than anyone would you know care about if you're doing it for like the true criminess of it, right? Like they were, they were abusing kids before they ever had these six children. Like it's just, it's just so much darker, I think, than. Yeah. Uh, Which is really funny. So like the people were like, is it too heavy for me? You know, like I've, I've noticed that, that people who look, I think it is heavy to be clear. You know, it was, it's extremely, hard material to look at and to sit with. Yeah. But I believe that like taking in this story as like entertainment is, is really fucked up. I I believe that. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so it's important to sit with this if you want to, you know, like, and it's also important, like ultimately my hope and goal is to start just to help shift this narrative about what the system does and who, is who gets caught up in it and you know again what the issues really are rather than it being okay we're overburdened we're underfunded what what are some of the like more central and pertinent issues with the yeah. system so i i asked this of andrea elliott and i'm going to ask you too because i think it's in line a little bit which is like how do you as the journalist as the writer as the person who sold the book how do you navigate knowing that like in some ways you are profiting or benefiting off of this story? Because I'm sure you're a thoughtful person. I'm sure there's some complicated feelings and I'd love to hear about how you feel and think about that. Yeah. And it's interesting because I've asked uh, this of other people who've done similar work. 
it, I, think, I ask everyone, I think I, I just I need to hear yeah. the answer. I just it feels like as a person who consumes this, you know? Yeah, I think that. Um, well, first and foremost, I think that journalism has to reckon with this in general. Right. Yep. And yep. I think there's ways that we can be super extractive of people's trauma. I thought about it constantly as I was working on it. I mean, I will say I went into debt to write the book. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So I I will say that I think that there's a like a I mean, I think it happens for some people that they make millions of dollars and then sure. they keep, you know, um that wasn't my experience at at the time. Um and I was taking big sort of making big sacrifices in my stability financial stability in order to tell the story. That being said, like I'm in a different class position than the people that I'm writing about. And mm-hmm. also their grief is really immense. And, um, you know, I do believe that there's a value for some people who want to contribute their stories in having and being seen mm. and, and being heard. Right. Like, and particularly I think, for people like Tammy who are birth mothers that nobody wants to see or hear from ever again. Right. Like this right. is a shame for them that they, they are expected to carry in silence. Mm. And so I feel like there was some stuff that was happening in, in the moment and not mm-hmm. in the writing even, right. That was potentially healing or helpful, at least just being witnessed, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but also I feel like, you know, it's my job. Right. And there's ways that we, I think we sort of devalue our, we can devalue our own work by, mm-hmm. um, you know, someone on Twitter asked me like, are you going to give some of the proceeds to like, and I'm, and I wanted to ask her, are you going to give some of your proceeds to these people? Right. I mean, like, you know, I gave five years of my life to try to tell this story and I hope I did it justice, but like, right. Ultimately, I think there's a way of being, again, it's like, I think the much bigger issue is the way that we treat people on the ground in the moment as journalists. And I think that's what feels, you know, and Dante, the the older brother, he asked me this, what do I get out of sharing my story? Right. Mm -hmm. And I gave him this extremely earnest answer (laughs) that I, I, that I happen to believe, you know, I I said, like, I think your story has value. I think that your story should exist alongside your sibling stories. I think you're part of this story. I think people should know about what you went through Yeah, because it wasn't okay. Yeah. You know? And then the other piece I'll say is that, you know, when I got the opportunity to negotiate with the heart, um, families, surviving relatives for some of the remains of the kids. That was part of my thought process was that like, that's something concrete that I can do for them. That is a show of like respect. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) You know, um, because I couldn't, I can't promise that they're going to like this, the book. I'm not, you know, I can't, you never, you, you have to do, like journalism is like you owe it to the story to do the story, you know, the best way that you can, but it's not to do something that everyone's going to like, or everyone's going to, you know, appreciate. So, you know, when I got that chance to do this, this thing, I did that 
as not really as a journalist, more as a person, because, you know, but I do feel there's that that's more of a complicated question than a lot of people want to tangle with, like, ethically. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, Um, Wait, do you know if the families have read the book? And I I know that Tammy's read it. Yeah, I know Tammy's read it and Tammy liked it. Dante, he's incarcerated again, and I sent him a book, but I don't know for sure that he's gotten it. Got it. And uh, Nathaniel passed away oh. last fall, so he has he didn't get a chance to read it. But I did give it to his um, grown daughter from his first marriage, mm-hmm. and she read it, and she liked it. So. I, I love Nathaniel. Um, <laughs> okay, this is like such a hard shift, but I ask everyone this. How do you like to write? How many hours a day? How often? Music or not? Snacks and beverages? Rituals? Set the scene for us. Okay. Um, I uh, I don't like to write every day. Okay. I thought you were going to say I don't like to write. And I was like, me neither. <laughs> no, I actually really like writing. I just okay. like writing when I'm ready. When I'm Got ready. it. Got and it. that's different than, than sitting there and like banging at the keys. Yeah. Um, Cause I feel like when I try to do that, the work I produce is bad and I need to fix it. Yeah. And then when I wait till I'm really ready to go and I give myself, so the way I wrote this book, and this is partly because the pandemic, uh, I had my three and four year old at the time. I mean, he's, he's now he's six, but he was home with us. So right. that was another thing is I couldn't, I can't like turn, like click into this extremely heavy stuff and then click out to like make a lunch and then go back in. (laughs) Right, 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 right. Um, So I ended up doing these like writing trips to the hill country in like outside of Boston. And I was doing those like once a month for like four days, five days and writing like 10 hour days. Oh my gosh. And then I would finish I wouldn't have to talk to anybody I would be (laughs) I would make myself an egg and take a bath and have a whiskey or whatever and then when I came out I would do reporting like all the time I can report every single day you know and I can write too like in my normal journalism life I can write here at my desk and we're at the coffee shop with I listen to Yanni not not during the book but mostly during my writing I listen to Yanni (laughs) Okay. It's like synth, you know, like Yeah, no, I know what it is. (laughs) (laughs) Which is really funny. I said it's like um Pavlovian now. Like, you know, if I put on Yanni, I'm like, okay, I'm in the zone. Gotta write, gotta edit. (laughs) That's so funny. Um, what's a word you can never spell correctly on the first try? Any of those like E and I things I always have to look up. Like receive or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's the coolest person who's expressed interest in your book? Gosh, Matt Desmond. (gasps) He told me so many really nice things about my book. We met in San Antonio. I mean, reading Evicted was hugely influential in Mm. like what I was attempting to do. Mm -hmm. And um, he just said really nice things. And it was like, oh, my God, like just the fact that he read it and thought it was cool. I mean, that's really a big one. I love that. For people who have enjoyed We Were Once a Family, what's another book you would or other books you would recommend to them that are in conversation? 
Well, I think Invisible Child is an obvious yeah, choice. I, I've just um, been screaming about it all day. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, if if you haven't read Random Family, I feel mm-hmm. that Random Family was... Um, I read that in, in the beginning of grad school, and it helped me um, just, like, realize what is possible yeah. in, this, in this medium. And I also felt like the reporting was so, so... I mean you know, if there's a reason that everyone talks about it all this yeah. time later, you know? Yeah. This is my last question for you. If you could have one person dead or alive, read this book, who would you want it to be? Uh, Judge Pat Shelton. Mm. <laughs> Monster villain. Um, all right, everybody. This has been a conversation with Roxana Oxgarian, who's the author of We Were Once a Family. I know that I have said this on the internet and I know that I sort of said this at the beginning, but I just want to say it one more time for people. If you made it this far, this book is fantastic. You should a thousand percent read it. You should prepare to read it when you can sit down and basically read the whole book in like a day or two, because it is really heavy and you aren't going to want to, as Roxana just said, click in and click out of it. So Find a time where you can sit down and just read it and be in a place where you can do that. I started it thinking like, oh, I'll start this. And then I was like, well, I have to finish this in the next 48 hours because I can't be with this too much longer. Like it's one of those kind of books. But it is so good. It's so well written. It is so well reported. It is so important. I love this book very, very much. I will be rooting for you and this book and whatever you do next for the rest of my life, probably. And I will be screaming about this book for the rest of the year, people. So just read it so that you don't have to feel like you're missing something because you're definitely missing something if you haven't read it yet. That is my true, honest, heartfelt pitch. Roxana, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. And your support means so much to me. I love this book. Um, Everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to Roxana for joining the show. I'd also like to thank Stephen Weil for helping to make this conversation possible. Don't forget our May book club selection is This Boy We Made by Taylor Harris. And we will discuss the book on May 31st with Nicole Chung. If you love the show and you want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the stacks pack. Make sure you subscribe to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts or Spotify, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, you can find us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and TikTok and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And you can check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. Tracy Thomas.